Life Audio. You're listening to Therapy and Theology, and I'm your host, Carly Merclear. This podcast is a space where we explore popular topics and questions related to the convergence of faith, feelings, spiritual formation, and more. My prayer is that through these conversations, we will grow in our awareness of who we are as beloved children of God, learn to acknowledge our needs and emotions with curiosity and compassion, and rediscover the purpose and power of our unique stories through the lens of the gospel. As a licensed therapist and ministry leader, I want to give voice to the many questions we face while cultivating a clearer view of how our faith informs our healing journey. I don't have all the answers, but I am committed to going deeper and walking together. So whether you've been to therapy or know exactly what you believe when it comes to theology, I want to invite you to join this journey as we fearlessly name the complexities of our present reality and press into the hope of the gospel story. So are you ready? Let's jump into today's question and begin this journey together. Well, good day to you. It's Joel with The King Country dropping in to let you know that our brand new film, Unsung Hero, is in theaters now. It's Luke here. We've teamed up with the creators of Jesus Revolution to bring you this adventure of a lifetime. It's a powerful, true story about a family uniting, growing in their faith, and facing the impossible together. In theaters now, unsunghero.movie for more information. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Hey friends, welcome back to Therapy and Theology. In connection with our theme embodied, today we're going to be discussing the topic of religious addiction, its impact on our emotional and mental health, and the disembodiment it can bring our souls and spiritual process. Although many of you might be familiar with extreme OCD manifestations of religious obsession, such as scrupulosity, we will be discussing the more subtle dangers of extreme dogma and its effect on our emotions, bodies, and faith journeys. So today, I'm excited to introduce my guest and co-host for today's episode, Pastor David Rubled. He is a former worship leader and musician, writer, podcaster, and trauma-informed coach and academic. In 2017, God called him into pastoral ministry with a focus on teaching and discipleship. David's aim is to create a safe environment for individuals who wrestle with their faith. Many who are drawn to his work are people who grew up in Christianity but never felt safe enough to ask tough questions. David is committed to working in order to help skeptics consider Christianity in a fresh and new way, while also assisting devout followers of Jesus and growing deeper in their understanding and practice of his ways. Currently residing in Arizona with his family, David writes for various publications in addition to his own blog. He is also the co-host of the Evolution of Faith podcast with Zach Zienka. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. So welcome to the show, David. I'm so honored to have you join me today. And I would love for us to start talking 
and start this conversation by hearing a little bit more about your journey as it relates to the intersection of faith, feelings, and spiritual formation. Yeah. So I was born and raised in Colorado Springs, which is like the mecca of evangelical Christianity. And even in that, I was raised in a movement known as Christian fundamentalism. So there's a couple documentaries out right now that highlight some of the abuses within that, both podcast documentaries and on Max, catch one on Amazon that was like the number one documentary through the summer. And basically is authoritarian, which it's legalistic and highly abusive in multiple ways, both the theology that's there, but also the leaders that go unchecked and are very cultish in the way they lead. So I was raised in that movement and I walked through spiritual abuse through an environment that was highly toxic. I also was sexually abused within that environment as a child. And what it did was in that environment, there's so much shame and so much denial. Most of the families and even in my own circles, I just was left alone. And Kind of the definition for childhood trauma is being left alone to attempt to navigate these sort of things where you don't close the loop. And so I sat in that for uh, about 15 years until I was 25. I opened up about that, went to counseling, a recovery group. But the reason why it's such an interesting topic for me, and I think for many others, whether you raise in fundamentalism or evangelicalism, is because there's so many mechanisms within Christian practice and Christian life that are shame-based. You look at like purity culture, you look at all these things that are shame-based. And what it does is it drives this sense of like, we have to do better. We have to try harder, not good enough. And when we sense that, we step into religious practices that I would say is not incongruent with like, it's not in line with the heart of God. It's more in line with us attempting to appease whatever and satiate whatever pain and trauma that we're sensing from the shame and those experiences and environments that we're in. And it's that's I would say that protective. uh, Yes. Yes. It's across the board. I think as I talk with people about spiritual abuse, religious spaces and I'm a pastor, you know, people come forward on Sundays for prayer. And this is the type of stuff we're talking through. They're processing the trauma they've walked through and the mm-hmm. attempts of them trying to do better, try harder for God to love them and them to feel better about themselves. That's awesome. I think it's a needed field to be able to just kind of step in between and say, hey, there's a different way that we can reimagine faith and even our religious experience. And so let's dive into the topic that I'm excited to talk about. I know that many of our listeners may connect with the term addiction to more popular constructs like alcohol or substances, but at the root of addiction is a common need, I would say, and a desire that we all have as humans. And so I would love for us to start out by maybe having you define what you mean by religious addiction and as a broad construct and the ways in which you see this manifesting in the Christian culture. Yeah, let me just define the two words that make up kind of that complex phrase. The first one, religion. Now, as I talk about this, it might dysregulate some people who maybe have an idea of what religion is. And so let me just define that as I use the term here today. Uh, Religion is basically a set of practices and beliefs kind of organized around a deity, some sort of transcendent way. 
And oftentimes it happens as culture is built within a group of people. And so what I would say is scripture actually talks about in James, it talks about religion that God accepts as one that is focused on the widows and taking care of those in, who are distressed, that we can actually see that a way of practicing our faith and our beliefs, if we want to call it religion, we'll call it religion, can be a good practice for the sake of us and for the sake of others. But then when we look at addiction, addiction is really anything. It's a compulsive condition. It's a compulsive engagement that has rewarding stimuli. And where it crosses the line is that there's consequences. And so you could look at things that are actually positive, things that are gifts for us, such as sex or even I would put alcohol. Alcohol is not something that's necessarily wrong in and of itself. But when we step over the line of a place of consequences for ourselves or others, you know, if we're not showing up to our job, if our family is affected, that's where it crosses the line of being an addiction. So a religious addiction is when our beliefs or our practices cross that line to where it does damage to ourselves Mm -hmm. and possibly damage to other people. Yeah, that's a great definition. I think of this, and I mentioned this in the introduction about like the extremes of this. I see in my work as a therapist, the OCD extremes of scrupulosity and those being kind of, oh, that's spiritual addiction, you know, but I'm curious to know how you see this manifesting within the just the common church today, you know, maybe even the propitiation of that in the way that we're showing up to our Christian cultures or our relationships. Yeah, I could hit that a few different ways. Uh, some of it's in our belief around how we talk about the character of God. Mm. And so if we define that God and like his default character is that of wrath, and then mm. we define wrath as anger that needs to be appeased, then we're always attempting to appease this deity that's angry with us. Sure. And so our practice is going to fall in line with that belief. That some of it is us avoiding emotions. And there's certain mm -hmm. things that happen so that becomes true. a kind of like a preoccupation, so to speak, with religious activities where we like obsess over them. I talked a little bit about this on uh, December 31st in a sermon as people are going into the new year of like that pressure we feel from mm -hmm. goals and resolutions, unfortunately, is the pressure we feel in our life of faith a lot of times. And so we kind of obsess over getting it right and, and engaging. We have compulsive behaviors in it. We, we sometimes neglect our responsibilities. We hurt other people. One of the things that comes if we believe God is angry and, and he's all about vengeance, we become judgmental and therefore we hurt people by not extending grace. Um, the, yeah. the externalization of that internalized shame in some ways. Yeah. I think of what Pete Scazzaro says in Emotional Healthy Spirituality, where he talks about one of the characteristics of unhealthy spirituality is this idea of using God to run from God. And I think that's such a great yeah. way of explaining it is like, I have to do, 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 do. I'm doing so much for God. I'm I'm trying to earn his grace or his goodness and in actuality, that's like not getting to know the heart of God, but it can yeah. be, I think, cultivated in this, like you're saying, this kind of culture of obsessive or compulsive or even addictive 
oh, I'm praised for all the things I do at church, so I'm just going to keep doing them. And that keeps me at right standing with God and others. In actuality, that can be, I would say, a very disembodied way of living out our spiritual lives. Absolutely. So I don't know if you've heard of this book before, but it's one of my favorite books by Gerald May, and it's called Addiction and Grace. Have you ever heard of this book? No, but okay. as I was looking at the notes, I was like, these are fantastic. <laughs> it's an incredible book. He talks about addiction. He says that addiction represents an attempt to assert co- complete control over our lives. And so this can be true about anything, right? Anything we are using to obtain control. And a lot of my clients will say, like, I have control issues. And I'm like, well, what does that actually mean, though? Because control is about safety. So is safety an issue? No, safety is a need, a basic need of humans. But yet control becomes where we're trying to, like, continually find this safety in ways that maybe can be damaging. And so even our, like you're saying, our religious practice can become something that we use to control our circumstances or our feelings or our relationships. So how would someone begin to identify some of these symptoms, I called them, of spiritual addiction or, or mechanisms of control? What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Within themselves or other people? And maybe we could do both. Maybe first okay. for internal, like kind of exploring our ourselves and then maybe yep. external. Yeah. One of the things, at least within the realm of trauma, because oftentimes anxiety is a symptom of, it's a trauma response. And never, it's a loop that never closed. It's, we're not building yeah. capacity for it. One of the things that we're, that our nervous system is looking for is safety and connectedness. Mm. And so if we in our sometimes our anxious states or our depressive states that maybe, you know, I can't diagnose it from a podcast, but maybe is coming from a trauma response, then what we do is we kind of whether we're in, you know, fight, flight or freeze, we kind of look for that thing that could make us feel safe and connected. So, for instance, on a kind of a lower level, our phone, right? This is something that. 
when I can't find my phone, I realize it's not in my pocket. I panic and I don't necessarily need to use my phone. I don't necessarily need, but the minute I have it in my hand, I calm down. A lot of people use religious practices in the same way where it's not necessarily connecting us with God or with one another. It is stepping us into a place where at that moment we can cope in a way where we kind of have a false sense of safety in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I think that can kind of perpetuate, right? In some ways, I'm just thinking about this as you're saying it, of like, the more I practice in that construct, the more I have to keep it up. And so then there's this like high level of anxiety that I have to keep kind of doing the thing that helps me feel like I'm in control. Which is, I mean, that's how compulsive addictions happen. That's how the chemistry of the need for dopamine builds. That is, I mean, right there, we're just defining what happens with other forms Mm -hmm. of addiction. Yeah. And I think there's this caveat that I want to put on this for those listening that are like, oh my gosh, do I have spiritual addiction? You know, I think that we all as human beings can utilize whatever it is, like I just said, whatever it is to try to maintain control. And so it Being able to have, I would say, kind of a befriending response to this is really important in the sense that when we recognize these things, we have to go back to the root of what is it that I need, right? And what, like you were saying a minute ago, like this trauma reaction or response is telling me something and that is telling me and inviting me into bringing these things to God, you know, or admitting, right? I think one of the first acknowledgments, right, in the 12-step program is admitting that we don't have control. (laughs) And so it's this idea of like, wow, okay, that's really hard. So I just want to acknowledge that both for my own process that I've had to walk through and then for those maybe listening that this experience that we have as believers specifically to utilize our faith in a way that feels like we're safe all the time can actually be the process of, of separating it and saying, I don't have control and this is why I need God. And this is why he came for me, you know, to move towards me, not me chasing after him to obtain his goodness. Just a little caveat there. I don't know if you have anything to add to that. but (laughs) No, that was great. (laughs) So where do you see, and I maybe want to, I know we talked a little bit about like the internal side, but I'm wondering too, where you see the most damaging aspects of religious addiction. And maybe we look at this from like the way it propitiates more shame. So you had mentioned a minute ago about how like we might become more judgmental if we ourselves, right, are trying to find control in our own spiritual process. How do you see this happening maybe in church leadership or even in just the Christian culture? Like the effects of this on the body, on the soul, on relationships? Yeah, I think some of it is how we preach about sin. Mm, Uh, We preach about sin specifically uh, as we're focusing on behavior. And behavior is oftentimes a symptom of something deeper happening. And so... If we look at, I think the Western church as a whole, specifically evangelicalism and fundamentalism, is just looking at the surface. And I love the way the Eastern Orthodox Church sees things as they see that there's actually like a sickness within Mm -hmm. the created order and that what God wants is to heal that sickness. Yeah. And so if we see it from that perspective, it's going to change the way that we see and interact with people in our seats leadership wise. And so I think that one of the things I I see continually is, is it's just more shame being poured on people who are traumatized and they already feel 
horrible about themselves. And what I think and I wish I would see more of is a deeper, more robust conversation around the sickness and the pain. And when we see that, what what it does is it actually leads us to even preach and teach. And I see pastors that preach and teach deeper messages that lead us to some of the stuff I talked about, like in James 1, where Mm -hmm. true religion that the Father accepts is one that looks after the orphans and the widows. Well, why is that? It's because the orphans and the widows and different systems of people who are being oppressed are, in a sense, that pain and trauma and sickness is being perpetuated, so that cycle continues. And so I think that if we could have, boil it down, a more robust conversation around what sin and and sickness is and why we need a cure at a deeper level Mm -hmm. than just pounding the pulpit. It brings so much shame, and it's played its way out in so many ways. And then we judge other people that don't struggle with the same behaviors we do Mm -hmm. and vice versa, and we're not looking deeper to what the actual thing's happening in somebody is. Yeah. Yeah, I always go back to intent, you know, like the intent of even the sin. (laughs) You're like, we could say, oh, like, that was a good thing, but it's maybe not good for us, or this is a bad thing. So it's like, it's all evil and being able to kind of lean into where's the divine nature in that, even that, like, I used an example in a small group once and everybody was like, oh, I can't believe she just did that. I once someone said, well, what about someone that has an affair? And I said, well, okay, so of course, an affair is an offense like that is there. It's your breaking of covenant. And yet, what is the divine need in that, right? Yep. It's love, acceptance, authenticity, right? And it's that is not the way we get it, but that is the movement towards what is actually real. We're just getting up, what my pastor likes to call it, like a counterfeit answer, yep. right? a counterfeit, yep. something that's been twisted and killed by the fall right, of man. And so I think that can really help reduce the level of shame and then yep. also kind of turn inward for all of us for everyone so that we can be on the same playing field of like, oh, I might not have the same addiction as you, but hey, we're all addicted if we're alive. And that's a quote that I really love from May's book, this idea of to be addicted is to be alive and to be alive is to stand in the need of grace. And that kind of is a really healing space. And so I don't know if there's more thoughts on that, but I would love to hear, you know, I asked this question of like, what's the missing piece here? And I think you kind of named it in some sense, but the idea of a more robust theology, a more robust way of talking about the sin and the human condition. What are their messages? I don't know if there's much to add to that, but what could we be focusing on that could bring a little bit more hope to this do better, try harder type of spirituality or religious kind of language that I think so many, I myself am recovering, you know, from that context that felt like I just had to keep trying to be a better Christian. Yeah, I would put in in a totally different category, but it's still part of the same conversation is that one of the things that I think is a miss theologically, but does a ton of harm is that we don't look at the physical as something that's good. And what's interesting is in the early church that came out of a movement known as Gnosticism, which was actually not in line with the gospel. But we have this concept, if I can push a little bit, that Our hope is to be disembodied up in some afterlife floating on the clouds, bodiless. And so what it does is it doesn't necessarily allow us to be present with the here and now and be present with the physical, both our body and those around us. To push even farther in that, 
you know, the early church, what they believed was defined in what is called the Nicene Creed. We don't need to get into all that stuff, but it's basically the essentials of like, hey, this is what we're uniting on. And there, it's broken in Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But it gets to a point where it talks about God the Father, and it says he created the seen and the unseen, which is another way of saying he created like the physical and then the things that we would deem spiritual. But what we tend to do in, in our Christian belief and practice, and it plays into this conversation, is we tend to only focus on the spiritual, mm-hmm. as if like that's all God cares about, and that that's all it'll be for eternity. And I think one of the things that's a huge miss that has been big for me is seeing that, no, like God actually took on flesh and blood. Mm, yeah. He actually like dwelt among us in a physical nature. Awesome. And... To see that in the end, we see Revelation 21, that beautiful representation of hope where there's no more pain or crying. It actually says that there's a new heavens and a new earth. So there's a new seen and unseen that are together. It's not just the unseen. The physical isn't just going to disappear. God legitimately cares about both. And he's starting the healing process holistically here and now, not just some like afterlife. And so... I think if I could push on that a little bit, maybe you've heard that. Maybe you're just hoping for heaven and you're yeah. singing the songs, you know, I'll, I'll fly away, oh glory, you know, you're singing that. That's not actually what God is doing and wants to do for the future. And it causes us to disembody ourselves and only focus on what we think is spiritual. Mm-hmm. So if I could push okay. on that, that's one of the things that I think is a belief within bad religion that leads us to bad mm-hmm. practice. Yeah. And when I hear that, I instantly think of, you know, the idea of like, I hear this so much, what you just said, like, oh, I just can't wait for heaven. Yeah. Like, we're just focusing on heaven, like, nothing's going to matter. And that. It's such an escapism from the present moment, from being in our bodies, from acknowledging the pain and the complexity of our world and our experience, and that God is coming to his kingdom is here right now. I was just talking about this with a friend recently. We were saying, what would it look like to wake up every day and being like looking for heaven on earth and how that changes the way we see our experiences? Yeah. So, so good. Yeah, absolutely. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Therapy and Theology. This is a two-part episode, so please stay tuned for next week while David and I explore the idea of authentic spirituality and simple steps that we can take to embody God's love for us. Also, don't forget to subscribe to have each week's episode instantly downloaded to your podcast and see the show notes for more resources mentioned in this episode. To access more content and to join my monthly email list, For the latest episodes and info, visit my website at carlymercouillier.com. Do you ever hear sayings make their way through the culture and the church that seem nice in theory, but are actually theologically problematic? My name is Shara Donahue, and I'm the host of The Bible Never Said That, a podcast where we examine these popular sayings under the lens of biblical truth. We cover sayings like, God won't give you more than you can handle, time heals all wounds, and follow your heart. We also spend time exploring how people use Bible verses out of context. If you want to grow in discernment and truth, join us and subscribe at lifeaudio.com.